welcome back to season two. Uh, if you're returning, I hope your August through December of 2021 was much better than mine was. Um, I am doing better. Um, I'm doing better physically. I'm a little bit um, better mentally as well. A whole lot worse financially, but I'm happy to begin this season again. And if you're new, welcome. Um, I'll let you know that back in August, I was in a serious car wreck, which is what I'm joking about now. But uh, nevertheless, I'm happy you're listening. Um, And currently, if you're new, just so you know, you're listening to the first episode of season two. So feel free to start here if you want, or you can go back to season one and catch up with what we've talked about so far. Now, this news is for everybody. There's some new stuff going on. Um, You can now subscribe to the podcast via Anchor for only $5 a month, and you'll get access to two new shows, which I think is a total steal. Um, One show is titled Parsing Propaganda, and that's where I thoroughly critique different Christian content, videos, blogs, sermons, what have you, and that comes out every Tuesday. The other uh, show is Amateur Religious Trauma Therapy, or I call it ART for short, and that uh, comes out on Thursdays and is also going to be live-streamed on uh, the Cult of Christianity Instagram. That show is unscripted, so I actually have no idea what it is yet, Um, but hopefully it'll be uh, therapeutic for me or for you. So if you can subscribe, please do. It would mean a lot. Um, And if you're unable to, I get it. No sweat. Enjoy the free show. Let's get started. Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. Content warning. While the cult of Christianity often deals with tough subjects regarding religious trauma and other triggering topics, some episodes may be more explicit than others. This episode contains content that may be distressing to some listeners. This may include multiple mentions of self-harm, suicide, sexual abuse, or other intense concepts. Please only listen if you are in the headspace to do so. Take care of yourself. On today's show, I have the um, privilege of talking to someone who currently holds uh, the record for longest Snapchat streak um, on my Snapchat. <laughs> A friend from college who um, we weren't super close or anything, but we reconnected later and it's been pretty great. Welcome to my uh, the show, Miley. How you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, you know, living the dream. Living the dream over here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, I asked this question to a lot of my guests. How did you relate to Christianity the first 18 years of your life? Um, that's a big, great question. 
Um, I, I would say in general, very positively, the first 18 years of my life were like, you know, going to church every Sunday. That was, it was like my identity. So, um, yeah, I was all in. I was from, you know, the moment I was born, I was in church, youth group, um, everything like that. And just, yeah, I don't know. I was always enthusiastic about it, which a lot of kids I don't think are, um, like my siblings certainly weren't. Um, but I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to be a good Christian and it's great. And like, this is the right way to do it. So in a nutshell, that was kind of how I, you know, saw myself in Christianity. Right. Gotcha. So even in high school, there wasn't much like rebellion or anything. It was kind of, uh, just still going all in. Oh yeah, definitely. I was, I was definitely like a goody two shoes. Yeah, I, I I was I was all in and in a way that was probably really annoying to some people. Um, but yeah, like I, I chose it. I mean, of course, I was raised and, you know, kind of like indoctrinated with it, like like most children are. But um, I I honestly didn't really rebel at all, you know. Gotcha. Well, uh, you obviously kept going down the path. Hence, you and I met at uh, Bible college. Um, and, you know, I know, uh, you know, that different people related to their experiences at that Bible college very differently. Um, I don't know, like, what was your perception at the time about that Bible college? I was, first of all, very enthusiastic about it, just the same as I was like about Christianity growing up. I chose to go to Bible college. My parents didn't influence me or force me or anything. Um, I, I really wanted to go to Bible college because I saw some hypocrisy in Christianity from a young age, like in my hometown. Um, and so I wanted to kind of get to the bottom of it. So I was really excited to get started at Moody and, um, you know, to, to dive into scripture. Um, so yeah, my, I mean, it, it definitely though was, was a big change because although the town that I grew up in was like religious, it was still, um, you know, I didn't go to like a private Christian school or anything. So it was pretty shallow and basic, like my understanding of Christianity. So coming into a Bible college, it was like, oh my gosh, all these people have been studying this for their whole lives. And they know about like theology and all the different doctrines. And like, I didn't have any idea about any of that. So, um, I felt kind of like a fish out of water. And I also like in the beginning got in some arguments with people, um, you know, mainly about like purity culture, actually, um, where like I would just get, you know, I would I would always lose those arguments consistently because they'd be able to point to, you know, something in the Bible that was like, oh, this is we're actually right. And you're actually being, you know, slutty or whatever (laughs) by wearing leggings or I don't know. So like. It was definitely a culture shock, but I adjusted to it um, because I was like, well, they're right. I mean, like, you know, studying the Bible, I'm like, sure, yeah, I'm supposed to be subjugated. I don't know. I didn't think of it in those terms, obviously, back then. Yeah, that's interesting. I definitely can relate to a lot of that. I I was one of the the people who probably did um, study theology pretty intensely before I even got there. But I will also say a main one of the things you said, a main motivation um, for me in going to Bible college was like, I see hypocrisy in Christianity and I don't like it. 
um that was a pretty big motivating factor um yeah those theology debates man those were those were awful um (laughs) i I remember those vividly and Uh gosh did not enjoy them um so when did you know i I know you now and know uh you're no longer a christian when did you uh first start questioning if you still wanted to be a christian so i don't think i ever questioned whether i wanted to still be a christian or not until i was 24 But that being said, leading up to that, I questioned Christianity a lot. Um, That's, you know, part of the reason that I went to Bible college in the first place was because I had like maybe not what I would call like full formed doubts, but um, all through high school and all through um, my time at Bible college, I I just had serious questions that, that just couldn't be answered satisfactorily. But again, I never like, you know, thought about leaving the religion until um, I was 24. And what happened around that time, one thing that was like a catalyst to that was, um, was my divorce. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that was <laughs> samesies. Uh, <laughs> that was definitely <laughs> a big plot point in a, in my yeah. departure. Um, so maybe before, you know, kind of your final exit, what were some of the like maybe early questions that you had? Was it, was it based on Christian behavior? Was it based on science? What, what was it based on? Yeah, a mixture of, of both of those things. And um, just a lot of seeming like injustice, not, not just within, um, you know, the Christian, um, the, the Christian body, like the church, but also, just within the very Bible. Like, you know, I I would always be confused by people would ask those simple questions like, why would a good God allow suffering? And um, even those questions that like, of course, you know, you know, from being at Bible college, like we had an entire class about basically how to answer that question and like, you know, apologetics, how to like refute all of those different claims. Um, But like, I, I just never could find any kind of satisfactory answer for God's behavior as it was recorded in the Bible, um, even Jesus's behavior in like the new covenant. Um, as you know, as I read, as I studied, I was like, I was still like, this isn't making sense. And every time that I would have conversations with people who weren't believers, every question that they asked me, like I would like fabricate an answer to based on, you know, I would parrot back things I had learned in Bible college, but I wasn't really sold on it myself. I would be parroting back these arguments, but then be like, yeah, but that kind of sounds like bullshit, <laughs> like in my head. Um, so, so yeah, it was definitely, you know, a mixture of the way that Christians acted, because we all know that Christians, like any other group of people, can act like total assholes um, and, you know, do really bad things. But it was also just the Bible itself, which our entire faith and religion was supposed to be based upon. Um, just things just weren't weren't adding up for me. I definitely relate to that feeling of uh, things not adding up or giving answers you know are the answers you're supposed to give, even if you're not completely sold on it. Um, So what about now? Nowadays, how do you view uh, spirituality? So I I view, first of all, I view religion and spirituality as like two distinct entities. Um, They can exist with each other or without each other. Um, obviously you can have spirituality within like a a codified religion, but I also believe that spirituality is something that people can experience completely devoid of any kind of doctrine. Um, 
So, so there's that distinction that I make first, but um, I, I do view religion and spirituality, but especially religion as, as just cultural. It's just an aspect of human culture that differs based on location and history and ancestry and all that kind of stuff. I studied anthropology for my undergrad after I left Bible college. Um, and so I, I really view all this through like an anthropological lens of, um, you know, for example, if I had been born in the Middle East, maybe my life experience would be similar, but you just replace Protestant Christianity with Islam, um, for example. So um, that being said, I, I do see religion as, you know, it's, it's part of my culture. Um, Christianity is, is a big part of my family and my background. Um, but but at, th at this point, I don't see it as like adding meaning to my life anymore. It's just part of the cultural landscape that I was brought up in. And in general, for everybody, I feel like religion is, is heavily cultural, even if people like make it their own. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely just an aspect of our product of our surroundings and an aspect of life that, um, yeah, it's just cultural. Yeah. And there's, it's interesting how religion relates to culture, right? Because religion influences culture, culture influences religion, and then religion has subcultures. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting to frame it that way. Um, Definitely the evangelicals you and I were around um, when we were younger would not like to frame the conversation that way at all. Um, yeah, because because for them, their religion was personal and was spiritual. Um, I think you you and I are similar in, in our views on spirituality, how we how we like to keep it vague and not define it too much. Because um, when you start defining it, I feel like that's when you start running into a lot of problems. Um a lot of cultural problems, which segues nice into the, um, what we're talking about today. Uh, as you understand it, can you give a brief summary of what people mean when they say purity culture? Yeah, I. So that's that's kind of um, a loaded question, but I mean, briefly, um, purity culture is the mainly religious idea that sex and sexuality is something that should only be reserved for marriage. Um, between a man and a woman, a monogamous heterosexual marriage. Um, so it's characterized by, you know, teaching abstinence um, instead of like safe sex, you know, just teaching abstinence, um, not only as birth control, but, you know, as like a moral kind of thing. Um, it, it, it kind of elevates, purity culture elevates sexuality at the same time as plunging it into the depths of hell. <laughs> it elevates it as like, you know, this is the the apex of like, human like love and you know commitment so you should only do it with your monogamous heterosexual partner but it also um stigmatizes sexuality it just incredibly just very uh very extremely um so you know there's modesty plays into that as well um, but basically purity culture just surrounds the topic of sexuality and what should or should not be um you know experienced in in sexual matters yeah so so the idea is being pure right um and there's 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 this weird like undertone of um say i mean it's basically saving yourself for marriage but like creating a lot of 
culture, uh, you know, around that concept. Um, yeah. Did you, did you talk about, you know, you mentioned earlier, like this is something that Christians talk about, right? Like they, they're depending on which Christian you talk about, talk to, they'll say something different about this idea of purity culture, right? Oh yeah. I, I think that, you know, it, it's going to vary based on, um, like again, you know, cultural background. So like Christians in, for example, like um, Western European countries have a different, you know, they might have a different idea of modesty or sexuality um, based on, you know, just just based on their culture. And and it also varies between, um, you know, uh, different denominations in the U.S. Um, and depending on, you know, if you're um, assigned male or female at birth, it's it's definitely that makes a difference as well. Totally. And I feel like I've heard people associate um, that one book, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, with like kind of the as the, um, I don't know, indicator of that of that culture. And I believe that guy who wrote that book has since come out and said, I actually contributed to the problems <laughs> in purity culture. Yeah. Yep, he did. He wrote a couple of different books like that and then later came out and was like, oops, <laughs> that wasn't helpful. <laughs> <laughs> we we'll, we'll give him grace we all have had some oops uh in our past but that's a pretty big oops um mm-hmm. yeah just just from my angle you know i don't feel like um I, I need to talk to my sisters about this topic a little more because i would be curious about their perspective but as far as i can tell my immediate family was not into purity culture we're not they were not trying to um you know that they they certainly thought we shouldn't have sex until marriage but i feel like purity culture is almost like this extra thing that is that's like not only should you not have sex until marriage you shouldn't even get close to it like you don't even mm-hmm. don't even think about sex in marriage until you're married almost and, yeah. and maybe i'm reading into that but i feel like there was a distinction because the church i went to in high school certainly was very encouraging of purity culture you know they would talk about courting instead of dating and the, the that kind of language yeah there there's definitely levels and i experienced personally like kind of i mean i guess not the most extreme level because there are definitely people who you know like you have to wear hair coverings and stuff so i wasn't like that you know extreme um but a more extreme version of that and that like you if you I was made to feel guilty basically about any aspect of anything that could be remotely sexual, whether that be my body or my my words, my interactions with people of the opposite sex, um, you know, like kissing even. Like I remember. So this is just an example of like how ingrained this like self-hatred of my sexuality was. The first time that I ever made out with a guy. I um I drove my car out to the woods after and just cried in the rain. <laughs> like it was so dramatic, but I felt so guilty because I had kissed a boy with my with my tongue. <laughs> like and that's and that's like all that happened. We just like made out, but I, you know, and I was 16 years old and I felt like, wow, I have really, you know, I am a skank. I am the worst. Like I mentioned earlier that I was like a goody two shoes and that's true because when I would do things like that, you know, like make out with boys in cars, I would feel immensely guilty because everything that I had been told was that this is wrong unless you're married. Um, I actually didn't even 
kiss my now ex-husband. Um, we didn't kiss until we were engaged. Um, so that's just, you know, an example of like how that translated into my life. Well, and I was going to validate you and say there's nothing wrong with that. But then you said with tongue. And now I'm like, I don't know. Maybe you were <laughs> being sinful. Um, <laughs> uh, no, listen. Uh, yeah, it's it's creates horrible guilt. I mean, high school, it's just the epitome of feeling guilty about um, your hormones. <laughs> I mean, uh, that that definitely was in that influence came, I think, from my church more so than my parents. But it was certainly there. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, and it, it's it's truly tragic. But your your the main crux is just this whole idea of abstinence, right? Um, and yeah, we've, we've all heard it probably if we had any kind of sex education that abstinence is the easiest form of birth control. You know, if two people don't have sex, sperm can't fertilize the egg, no pregnancy. But evangelicals, they're not. Um, that's not their goal to just have abstinence to prevent pregnancy. In their head, it's to prevent sin, God's punishment. And most strangely, unhappy marriages like that was a theme I remember hearing mm-hmm. a lot, you know, for oh, the yeah. Christian, for the Christian abstinence is is obedience to God. And even though no scripture explicitly forbids premarital sex, um, <laughs> they, they still are like it's the most taboo thing. And uh, though many of uh, the religious foundations, um, if you look at the Old Testament, they're not monogamous. They're not sexually prude. Um you know, and and yet uh, evangelicals still claim that extramarital or premarital sex is somehow immoral. Um, are there any moral or maybe even potential problems with having sex outside of marriage? So I, um, I'm going to be honest, when I was looking at your notes and like preparing for this, I saw that um, that little section and I was like, I really don't know how to answer this because all I want to say is like, just just throw just throw the words outside marriage or like within marriage just throw them out because legal marriage doesn't make any difference in sex um what makes difference in sex is the situation and the relationship you have with the person and the legality of it or like the officialness of whatever of you know if you're married or not that alone outside of any other factors doesn't make any difference so can there be um, moral problems or ethical problems with having sex just in general? Of course, you can, you know, you can have sex for the wrong reasons. There can be harmful um, sexual experiences. Um, but I don't, I personally don't think that any of that has to do with marriage or, or is just directly affected by marriage itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think I'm in full agreement. I, I I scratch my head at this one too because I I I think the only way any of that makes sense is if your value system value system expects marriage. You know, like expects um everyone to get married. I I guess <laughs> um right. because but even then it's like it's sorry to interrupt you, but it's it's just like a timeline thing. You know, um because then what if somebody you know what if somebody what if a couple is together for like three years, they get engaged and then they get married um, along that timeline? Is it bad for them to have sex at any point before leading up to that marriage? Because their relationship is the same and heading towards marriage. So like, you know, it's it's just a matter of mincing hairs at that point. Or is that is that the phrase? Splitting hairs. Uh- 
splitting hairs. Yeah, I I think that's yeah, and I think I think <laughs> I think some Christian, you know, as a, certainly I know some people now who would be more honest, but um, lots of Christians who get engaged uh start start becoming sexually active uh under the radar. Um, because of that logical fallacy of like, wait, I mean, we've already committed. What are we waiting for exactly? A piece of paper? Um, yeah, yeah it's strange, uh, mind you. So I, I, but I wonder, I feel like there's people who are non-Christians who still think like you should only have sex with people you're gonna marry or something like that. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and so, yeah, that's like you said, across, you know, across religions or creeds is that people are going to be like, oh, well, you know, there should be boundaries around sex. And so whether they put that boundary around like legal marriage or like serious relationship leading towards marriage or whatever, um, there's going to be that boundary. But I think that one, one thing that one thing about Christianity that really pisses me off, but it is like a complete cornerstone of Christianity is the love of of the binary. So good and evil or good and bad, sinful and not sinful, um, man or woman, gay or straight, like all these different, all these different like extremes that just aren't indicative of how humanity actually operates. But it's easy to take, to take a binary and try to put humans into it. You know, you're either married or you're not married. That makes it so easy. Like it's right if you're married, it's not right if you're not married. Um, it just makes it so simple, right? In theory. So um, that's I, that's just something that I can always get fired up about about Christianity because from what I know of the human experience, humans do not fit into binaries. Um, but it just makes it easier to handle the world and complicated issues if you try to force humans into a binary like that. You're just uh, preaching to the choir at this point. This is this is something <laughs> I have I've said multiple times. It's it's basically the problem with dualism, uh, the, the as a philosophy, um, and uh, Christians are dualists these days, um, especially evangelicals. Um, and you're right. The point that you made that I love that I try to hammer on is the motive for being dualistic in your thinking is the simplicity of it. It makes life a lot easier, you know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm a vegan, right? And it and I, I kind of joke one of the reasons I'm a vegan is it's just easier to say I'm not going to eat m- m- animal products <laughs> than to try to like mm-hmm. figure out what diet works for me. You know, it's just mm-hmm. a quick thing. I don't have to do a specific diet or count calories or anything. I can just say vegan, I'm healthy. And uh, don't don't I'm not a nutritionist. If you're out there eating whatever you want, keep eating whatever you want. <laughs> but uh but yeah like there there's an, an an appeal there um but the problem is uh when you try to force dualism on uh, other people um it's really really dangerous i mean um i don't know for for people who grew up in purity culture uh what do you think some of the difficulties they might experience sexually later in life might be oh all of the difficulties <laughs> so many because under under purity culture you're at least my experience of it right um is you're not allowed to even explore your sexuality you're not allowed to speak with it openly about most people like you said um you made a comment earlier about like even you know when you're with a partner unless you're like near to marriage you shouldn't talk about it 
Um, and even then, you know, only with like, you know, maybe like your pastor or counselor or whatever, and then your spouse. Um, but, but there can be so much sexual dysfunction later in life for somebody who has never been allowed to a be educated properly about sexuality, um, you know, about preferences, likes and dislikes about the mechanics of different people's anatomy. Um, and knowing what they what they like, you know, I mean, in purity culture, masturbation and pornography, that kind of stuff is typically, um, at least in my experience of purity culture, um, is is forbidden too. That's that's really bad. You're not supposed to masturbate. You're not supposed to view pornography. That's sinful. So um, if you don't have access to proper sex education or any kind of ability to be exploratory with yourself or with others until you're married, um, and then you can only explore it within that marriage those two people um, then you're going to run into a lot of possibly dissatisfaction confusion hurt um, and you know your self-worth is going to be affected definitely um, so so yeah i think that purity culture is just kind of setting people up for failure sexually ultimately i agree and i can even attest to it slightly i mean um you know uh we were, uh, you know, virgins with an asterisk, me and my ex-spouse, um, till, uh, till our wedding, uh, not even our wedding night, a couple days later, um, we were tired. Uh, but, um, but, uh, I remember when I would tell people who weren't Christians that fact, the response I got usually wasn't, um, that's crazy. Some people would say that, but it was more, oh, that's so cute. Or like, I feel like there's some, there's an appeal to romanticism there. Um, but it's all, but that romanticism is not really based in reality. Like you, you were saying, like, you have to know your body, you have to know the mechanics of it. You have to like, yeah. um, and should, am I encouraging everyone as soon as they, you know, hit puberty to go crazy sexually? Not really. I wouldn't advise that. Um, but I wouldn't, I don't think stigmatizing um, sex as a concept is very helpful either. I, I can attest that it was not. Yeah, definitely. And, and people like, I got the same reaction too, when I was like, oh yeah, me and, you know, me and him waited for marriage to have sex again with an asterisk, but you don't tell people that. Um, but like we waited to have actual penetrative intercourse until we were married and people will be like, oh, good for you. Or, you know, usually it's like um, people like respect that, which I think, again, is just a cultural thing, because whether you're religious or not, if you live in the United States of America, you're affected by Christian culture because our culture is just very purity culture is big, you know, in, in the United States, even insidiously, even if it's not like big interpersonally, it's, you know, our, our country's kind of prudish. Um, so I mean, at least more so than some other countries. So yeah, it's, it makes sense that people even who like have never thought about practicing abstinence themselves would hear that and be like, oh, good for you, because it's just kind of lauded as the pinnacle of like maturity and purity and morality to, you know, to keep yourself from sex until you're married, even though, yeah, you're right, it's baseless because it actually negatively affects people. Um, but but yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and yeah, I, <laughs> amazing. You and I agree so much. Um, but uh, <laughs> like it, it's it's yeah, it's so deeply harmful. And, and that you, you like you said, we're a pretty prude nation. I mean, Puritans uh, were some of our founders, you know, um, and uh, 
it's I like that you said purity culture is big because when I talk about purity culture, you know, in the last two, three years, like a lot of people are going, oh, that's going, that was like the 90s. That was like the early 2000s. That's, that's, you know, that was just a weird little blip. I'm like, no, not really. Like this is, this is, uh, this is a thing that is, mm-hmm. when it's addressed, it's addressed as like, um, yeah, we probably should be a little bit more proactive with our sex education in a God-honoring way, which is just a codified way of saying, yeah, we need to make purity culture more palatable for this era. But purity culture has not died by any means. No, it's deeply ingrained in anybody that's alive now has has had it ingrained into them that that is what you should do. And um you know, of course, that's a generalization. It's probably not everybody, but it, it is just a very common thing. Even if you like didn't, you know, sign purity pledges or wear purity rings or whatnot, like you still were around when this movement, you know, was, you could say, at its pinnacle. And so those ideals, those ideals are still, they're still there. They're still under the surface and they still impact um, a lot of ways that, that people think and operate. Yeah, some more codified language, you know, rather creepily, um, Christians uh, say that, like, God is somehow involved in the sexual process, and they'll weirdly and vaguely uh, extrapolate the concept of becoming one flesh when you're married. Um, I don't really know what any of that means, but I guess I, I could ask, is is sex spiritual, and is married sex or partnered sex more spiritual than, you know, non-partnered sex? So, I... I firmly believe, like I said earlier, that marriage itself doesn't change sex at all. Um, you know, if you have sex the day before you get married and then you have sex the day after you get married, nothing is going to change. Um, but that being said, sexuality or sex itself can be a spiritual experience, but it can also be an experience completely devoid of any kind of spirituality. And I think that depends on so many factors. Um the the more I discuss things like this, the more kind of not frustrated I get, but the more I realize like there's no easy answer for for any of this. And I think that's this is kind of like a, a tangent for a brief moment. But since I've left Christianity, I've come up with a lot more questions than answers because the answers that Christianity was giving me were just too simple and they, you know, weren't representative of 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 reality. So so like for me to, if I were a Christian, you know, when I was a Christian, I would have been like, oh yeah, sex is spiritual and married sex is, you know, how you should do it. And non-married sex is, is bad and negative and, and it's a spiritually bad experience. So that's what I would have said then, because it's easy to draw that line and be like, this is good, this is bad. Um, but in reality, um, sex, regardless of marriage, can be spiritual or non-spiritual. I've had experiences outside of marriage sexually that were deeply spiritual. Um, and then I've had, you know, sexual experiences that just were not. Um, you know, there was no, like, deeper connection there. Um, it just really depends on the person that you're with and the situation that you're in, I think. But yeah, the the whole, like, God being in, like, the bedroom, like, smiling down on you when you're having married sex that that always um that's weird (laughs) that always weirded me out like I remember like the night that you know my husband and I got married just like thinking of that like it was in my head I was like looking up at the ceiling during sex like mid-coitus I was looking up at the ceiling and I was thinking like 
oh, is God like watching this? Like, okay, I, I waited. I'm, I'm doing, is this okay? <laughs> like, it was, it was just so, it was just so awkward. It was just, it's such a weird concept. And, and yeah. <laughs> no, it's weird. I mean, <laughs> it's really, really weird. Um, I, I don't, I don't, you know, personally, my experience thus far sexually has been, uh, it's way more animalistic than spiritualistic. Um, it's not to, mm. that, I don't mean that in, a, <laughs> in any kind of style of my lovemaking. I just mean that, uh, that a little like, revealing there, John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yikes. Don't read into that. Um, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it 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 is saying sex is spiritual is probably fine, you know, to, because I think there there's definitely maybe a grain of truth in like something that can be a big um, euphoric uh, connection point for people. Um, you know, that makes sense that it that it would seem spiritual to those who consider themselves spiritual. Um, but it, it's probably uh, okay to say that it's really weird to say God's in the room with you. <laughs> Because yeah. first off, he'd be in the room either way. But it's like it, by saying that they're almost adding that like God is blessing you or do God. God's yeah. a third member, and that's like I don't. I didn't ask for a third here. So uh, yeah, like he's just a voyeur, and he's and he's just yeah, like watching like oh, this is this is good. This is good shit. Yeah, that it's good for him. Yeah, that's almost yeah. like the concept that a, your rational brain goes to. But when you're so like caught up in all that. um you know, Christianese, I guess, just weird things start to happen. Like with spirituality, like when I say sex can be spiritual. Um, so my, my like perception of what the word spiritual means is like now it's not like at all um, to do with religion or Christianity. And so people can define that differently for themselves. Um, so I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but, but the, the one phrase that you used was, um, I think you said like becoming one flesh. I know that, you know, the Bible says that and everything. Um and, and that I think is, 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 is bullshit because like, what, what does that, what does that even mean? I wish, I wish that I remembered my Greek and Hebrew training enough to like look up the, the actual translation right now and try to get to the bottom of, of what one flesh means. Because like when I have sex with people, never have I thought to myself, like, we are one flesh, like our bodies are, I mean, yeah, part of, part of our body is inside of the other person's body probably. So maybe that's what it means, but like, why would, I don't know, this is kind of a tangent, but I just think that's weird. <laughs> no, it is. It is. And well, and the frustrating thing is Christians don't define what it means. I mean, I, if no. I, I don't quote me on this, but my memory of that verse in Greek is just what it sounds like. Like it's just one, you know, how flesh is typically used in the new Testament which just mm -hmm. means you're like your personhood, right? Um, like your mm -hmm. your flesh, your flesh and bones. The um, so it's like yeah. you become one. And like again, I'm a poetry nerd, so I'm like, oh, that's kind of cute. But it's like that mm -hmm. doesn't like it's not it 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 it's probably meant to be cute and not much more. Um, yeah. So yeah. So uh, Christians have spent a lot of money on um, and not just Christians. Our uh, federal government actually, um, yeah, this I believe this is correct. The federal government has spent like two billion dollars on um, abstinence programs in public schools, um, and you know Christians have spent a lot of money, you know, lobbying for for that. Um, should lobbying be allowed when it comes to sex education, and and if it should be allowed, what what kind of lobbying should be allowed? At first glance, I, or like at first here, 
whatever of this question, I feel like I don't want to say that, oh, no, nobody should ever be able to lobby for their beliefs because I feel like there should be freedom to believe what you want. But uh, in this case, um, abstinence-only sex education is statistically proven to not work. <laughs> and it's proven to actually cause higher instances of unwanted pregnancy because people are going to have sex anyway and they just don't know how to be safe about it. And so they end up getting pregnant. Um, so I, I don't think, I mean, especially public school sex education, but if I'm being honest, any kind of school, private, public, religious, whatever, should, should have more comprehensive sex education. And that's my opinion. But like, but again, it's, it's a little bit troubling because, you know, I, who am I to say that like a parent who observes a certain religion shouldn't have a say in what their child is learning about such a sensitive topic? Um, so, so I'm a little bit torn, like on the, on the should part of that. Um, but, but yeah, I definitely am not down for abstinence only sex education. That's what I had. And I went to a public school, but it was just in such a small town that it was, um, very, you know, religious and pretty much the town would have, you know, uh, ran people out of town if, if they taught anything other than abstinence only sex education. We also weren't allowed to learn about evolution in science class. So that was kind of fun. Um, at a public school. At a public school. Yeah, it was a small public school. And like I said, small town of a lot of religious people. It's just I, I I'm going to I'm going to rant a little here. Like that <laughs> drives me insane because Christians so often like boogeyman like public schools as like this place where you're going to get indoctrinated with all these terrible ideas like evolution and and condoms and all these things that your 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 five-year-old's going to be handed a condom and then told we're monkeys, you know, like and it's like <laughs> there's a public school that my friend went to that <laughs> well not only wasn't teaching anything close to that but was teaching their indoctrination. It's just it's the height of gaslighting and it's just in, insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gaslighting is a great word to describe pretty much all of Christianity <laughs> and my experience yeah. with it personally. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah, I I'm I'm a bit I fumble through the lobbying question too because I, I agree with you. It is a sensitive topic for, for many reasons. You know, what age is the right age? Well, it's probably different kid to kid. Um, parents mm -hmm. definitely should have an influence in educating their kids, especially about like sex and like things that aren't strictly like academic, you know. Um, but encouraging that freedom, th we should also be dealing in facts and not in theories, probably when it comes to something that is so material. I mean, sex is not one of the things that I think traumatized me a little bit is sex was a concept. It wasn't a real thing. Like, because I was steered away from it so much, like, it lived in my mind more than in actuality. So when the sin was making the, the concept material, the sin was making it, I'm not just, you know, thinking about sex, now I'm masturbating, or, you know, now I'm thinking about specifics when it comes to sex, and that's wrong. You know, it, it's... It's so tragic because sex as a thing, I mean, <laughs> go to go to a dog park and you'll see dogs humping each other. It's it it is nature. It is what we do. It's reproduction. It's it's and so uh I don't know. That's a bit of a rant, but it just it drives me crazy because um that's I, to purity culture just doesn't make it a real thing. It, it it's like it tries to sweep it under the rug or something. Oh yeah, it definitely tries to ignore it in any capacity and um you know any any amount of 
like sexuality, you know, for example, like women's bodies. Um, I like I, I remember this is just a funny little anecdote. I remember in like fourth grade or something, it was elementary school on the playground. I had brought this book to school because my mom had gotten me this book in lieu of like a sex talk. She like got me this book. It was an American girl book. It was called The Care and Keeping of You. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but it was um, directed towards young girls and it was you know it had like cartoon drawings in it and whatnot but it talked about puberty basically and you know in a very like honest and informative way it was a great book i learned a lot from that book it talked about everything from like oh when you go through puberty you might need glasses or contacts it talked about periods it talked about bras it talked about like the mechanics of going through puberty it did not talk about sex and it did not talk about you know male anything. It didn't have like male reproductive system or, you know, whatever. Um, so it was, you know, just like a, an innocent, helpful book for young girls. And um, I remember bringing that to recess on the playground and looking through it with a couple of friends of mine. And another student went to the recess duty and like told them that we were looking at porn. And so the recess uh, monitor, whatever, she comes over and she's like, I, I hear that you're like reading a book about sex and, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. So I showed her the book because I was like, this is just about puberty. Like this is and it's all cartoons, too. Like, you know, it's it's drawings, whatever. And she, you could tell, I think, you know, I remember her being like kind of like annoyed. I don't know if it was with us or with the person who told on us, but she was kind of annoyed. She's like, she's like, maybe just don't, you know, bring that out in public. Um, and so that was that was just an example of like anything remotely sexual, including the natural processes of the human body that are going to happen, whether you want them to or not, even that is something that is taboo and um, shouldn't be discussed, which which is harmful to children. It's harmful in a lot of ways, partially because like, like I said, that book was like kind of the closest thing to like a sex talk that I had. Um, and we didn't have, you know, any kind of sex education. I think like in fifth grade, we watched a video about periods and like then we had health class later which was abstinence only so like and people are going through puberty so much younger nowadays especially girls girls are going through puberty at like surprisingly young ages getting their periods in elementary school and stuff and so like if they're not educated about this um that kind of thing in their bodies then that's going to make that time even more rough no, you're, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And like, you know, uh, it's traumatizing to have your first period if you don't know what's going on. It's traumatizing to ejaculate for the first time if you don't know what's going on. Um, it's important stuff. Sex education is important. Um, and and I can't I cannot stress enough how little it happens in Christian circles. Um, right. And it, and it goes even further. You know, many religious institutions, especially private Christian schools, have like rigid dress codes um that are you know designed under the guise of being modest but to um dress in a way or behave in a way that is unassuming or moderate like the word modest means um that doesn't mean dressing like a pioneer or you know <laughs> um covering up anything that begins with a b um modesty seems to be a co-opted word redefined to mean um don't let women have sexual power um so to be fair um you know our culture it you know it oversexualizes women for sure, especially young women. Um, but are Christians helping or being counterproductive, uh, countercultural in a good way by encouraging kids to be modest? No, not at all. Um, first of all, 
it's not helpful. It's, it's harmful um, in a lot of ways that I can go into. And secondly, it's not countercultural because um, Christians harping on modesty is just, modesty is already like, like I, you know, like we talked about before, like such an ingrained part of our culture, like purity culture is that um, it's not countercultural to, to tell people to be modest, you know, it's, it's cultural. It's going in line with the culture. And I think that Christians like to believe that they're being countercultural and they take it as a, a sense of pride to be like, you know, we're going against the modern mainstream culture and telling, you know, women to cover up their boobs, like that kind of stuff. So, but, it, but it's not, it's not countercultural at all. This has been part of our culture for a long time. Um, and the whole modesty thing has been around for a long time. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think it's helpful at all. And in fact, I think it's, I don't know, like if I'm allowed to swear on here, but I think it's super fucked up to encourage children to be modest and mainly female children because female children are over-sexualized. I mean, them being sexualized at all is over-sexualizing children because they're children. Like I remember first, um, you know, being like sexualized when I was like five or six by a friend of, you know, my stepdad's. Like I... Um, I, I have memories from a very young age, multiple memories of being sexualized as a child because I was wearing like a tank top, even though I had no boobs, no curves, didn't shave yet. I was hadn't gone through puberty yet, whatever. Not that any of that matters, but like the fact that just because I was a female, I was being sexualized was super fucked up. But I knew that that was messed up at that time. But what I was told was that it was up to me to stop that from happening um, because encouraging children, kids, young people, anybody to be modest, um, especially women by, you know, that's, that's just encouraging them to take responsibility for other people's perception of their bodies and that A is not effective or helpful and B is just, um, it just, it just enrage, enrages me that children have to go through that that anyone has to go through that, but that as a child who doesn't even understand sexuality, because like we said before, it's so taboo, it's not even talked about openly, that they're going to be sexualized, and not only that, but they're going to be held responsible for being sexualized. None of it makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, again, we're back to that dualistic idea, right? Where it's like, oh, someone is sexualizing, well, you know, sexualizing children just wrong across the board. So I'll make the example a little different. Like, let's say, you know, you know, you turn on a commercial and it's just like a model sexily selling, you know, like uh, a snack, you know, and you're just like, what is, you know, if you step outside of the culture a little bit, you're like, what is happening? Like, what, how did we get to this point? You know, it's easy to, if you're dualistic to go, oh, the problem is what parts that person is showing. It's a lot more complicated than that. It's like, well, that might not be the problem, but there, but you might be correctly identifying that there's a problem here. You might just be identifying the wrong problem. Yeah, um, for sure. And in modesty too, um, like I've I've talked to a lot of different people about modesty since I left Christianity a few years ago. And one main thing that I heard from a lot of people has been that modesty should extend past what you wear. Um, you know, some people, you know, like the Christians will say, you know, some will say like past, some will say it doesn't even matter what you wear. It has to do with your, um, the way you comport yourself, the way you carry yourself, um, 
you know, how you act um, around others, whether you're prideful or, you know, um, it, it, I mean, a lot of, you know, people that I've talked to think that it has to do with behavior, um, which I definitely think that there is a behavior component to modesty. So like with your example, with the commercial, um, the woman could be, you know, covered head to toe in like a, like a, like a sleeping bag or something, but she could still be like sexily promoting a product. Um, because it has to, you know, there's, it has to do with more than just what is being worn. Um, but, but I still think that, um, you know, you're right, there might be an issue there, but I don't think that it's right to reduce it to, um, to a body or to clothing. Right. And like, yeah, should your 12 year old wear like a skimpy bathing suit? Probably not. But that's, but what, but they're also, regardless of whether the kid does or not, it's how our, we, we can be mad at institutions that are, um, you know, creating products um, that contribute to the exploitation and uh, improper consumption of um, child porn, both proper and informal. But that is where our attention should be, not on the kid doing anything about it. They're a kid. Um, why do we have men primarily who are over-sexualizing uh, young people? That's the problem. And that's where our sh- attention should be directed. Right. And and I think like I'm going to slightly challenge something that you said, too, when you said like, should, you know, a 12 year old or whatever wear something um, skimpy, sexually suggestive. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that that's that's bad because skimpy or sexually suggestive um, modesty itself is purely relative. If you go to some other place in the world, you could be wearing, um, you know, a full headdress and, and like a gown, whatever. But if your ankles are showing, you're immodest. And then there are some places in the world, um, you know, there are lots of tribes, for example, um, like in warm climates where nobody, men or women, wear clothing, you know, or they'll like their, their private parts that what we consider private parts will be like out for everybody to see because that's just part of their culture. So modesty and what is acceptable, what is provocative, um, what is sexualized is 100% relative based on culture. And that's something that bugs me because, um, for example, like when missionaries will go over, you know, to some, some remote place and they'll find this tribe and the women aren't wearing shirts around or whatever. Um, they'll impose their morality around modesty on those people, but in their eyes, that's not negative at all because they've all been raised in that culture. So they haven't come to over-sexualize people based on that. Um, so so all that to say there's it's it's so much more layered and nuanced than just oh if 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 children didn't you know dress skimpily then men wouldn't be predatory towards them um that's that isn't the case at all the case is that the culture that we've grown up in and not just like america but like people's specific family cultures um, you know, their their surroundings, their environment when they were growing up, how women were portrayed to them by their family members, et cetera. Um, that can, that is what has an impact on what they think is modest and not. Um, and, and I saw this, and I'm sure you saw this too, when we were at Bible college, people's different conceptions of modesty, mainly like how women dress, um, 
came to, you know, they, they clash sometimes at Moody because, um, because like some people may have grown up in, in, you know, a familial culture where women weren't sexualized if they wore leggings, you know? Um, but then some people were, and if they see women in anything that reveals any kind of, you know, body, then, um, then that's immodest. Um, so yeah, all that, yeah. all that to say, it's just, it's all relative and it gets really messy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's very helpful. And, and yeah, I, I didn't communicate well what I was trying to, uh, that, that, uh, the problem in that is like a culture of capitalism, not the specifics of what a, a kid wears. Um, and you're right. It is so, 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 so cultural i mean i i in fact you brought up bible college i remember like <laughs> there was a in, i don't know if you the the rounds got to you but i was asked by multiple women which is so strange but i was asked by multiple women if i thought yoga pants were sinful um mm-hmm. it was all like that on was a one, big thing yeah yeah it was all like on one day too it was like three different friends <laughs> who like they weren't even like close friends it was just kind of like <laughs> people like had classes with or whatever and i was like no and they and they were like, well, blah blah blah, and I was like, I mean, I don't know, like they're yoga pants. Don't you do yoga in them? <laughs> like, I it just my brain was not wherever theirs was. Um, yeah, and- no, I remember, I remember those debates, and oh, I got, I got to say. <laughs> Feel free to share more. Uh, the the one thing I will say though is like one of the things I brought up at Bible College a lot. You know, I'm from Atlanta. I'm from the South. Uh, it gets insanely hot down here. So, like, the standards for what people wear in the summer here are what noticeably different than what people wear in other parts of the country when I've been there in the summer. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's noticeable. Like, I'm like, wow, like, people really are sweating through that shirt <laughs> here. Whereas, like, I'm like, Atlanta, like, I used to take my shirt off, like, all the time just walking down the street. And it was very normal because um, it gets so hot. So, you're right. Like, it, it's definitely, definitely uh, relative for sure. Yeah, it's it's relative and it's also um, disproportionately unfair to women with certain body types. I remember one huge topic of debate at Bible college, you know, the whole yoga pants or leggings thing. That was one thing I remember having like a legitimate argument with some people in my house and in my sister and brother house um, about about that. And I got, I was on the side of like, you know, why, why do you think it's bad? Like I was, I was, I was pissed off, even though I myself, I don't even think I owned a pair of yoga pants and I don't think I like wore leggings as pants um, until, you know, a, a few years after I stopped going to Moody. Um, but I, yeah, I remember these arguments and I would get so mad because like if certain, for example, if, if a girl with very small boobs wears a low cut shirt, it's fine because it's not immodest because you can't see their boobs because they don't have any or like you you can't see like the curvature of them. They don't have cleavage, whatever. But if a person with big boobs wears any kind of shirt with any kind of, you know, if it's at all tight or at all low cut, just because of them having more bulk there, they're going to be disproportionately like hated on or stigmatized basically. Um, so it's really hard to be a Christian. It was really hard to be a Christian at Bible college, you know, with boobs. 
And like I had a housemate who had like a really nice butt and she would wear leggings and people would like give her shit and like think that she was slutty um, because she wore leggings. But it was only because she had a nice ass. And so like it just it always really confused me and pissed me off. And like I I don't know. I remember like talking to this um, about this with one of my friends from high school who was, you know, staunchly not religious. And I remember asking him what he thought of yoga pants. And he's like, oh, I love yoga pants. Because you can see, because you can see the butts. He was like, I, I just, I just love them. And I was like, yeah, but that's the problem. But yeah, anyway, I could go on and on about stupid well, modesty. <laughs> <laughs> it is really stupid. <laughs> You're right about that. Uh, it, it's just, it, it is silly. And it's almost saying the quiet part out loud a little bit. Like, um, you know, I would always joke. I'm like, a dude, you know. No, no offense to your friend, but I'm like, uh, personally, yoga pants. Yeah, I mean, they can be good looking on a good. I don't know. Full disclosure: when I find someone attractive, it usually doesn't matter what they're wearing. Like, it's like mm-hmm. I either find them attractive or I don't. You know, and yeah. you know, I have been in situations with different partners and friends where I'm like, oh, you're wearing that. That looks good. You know, but like, that's that's everyone you can do that as a guy and it very rarely has uh has to do with what you're showing off um maybe sweatpants i don't know but uh (laughs) it's it's not you know it's it's just people are attracted to what they're attracted to i don't think what we wear should be regulated in any kind of way um by any institution really um what do you think the the psychological impact of being told that it's morally right to dress in a certain way um it, what do you, what do you think that impact is specifically how it relates to you know like the, they're basically saying reduce your sexual appeal is it, kind of the subliminal messaging I feel like yeah I can only really speak to my personal experience and I've you know heard some other uh, women say similar things but my personal experience of that is that um, it's very psychologically harmful to be repeatedly told that the way that you dress or the way that your body um, exudes or does not exude sexuality is is moral in any way, um, is, is right or wrong or good or bad. Um, that is psychologically um, just is very harmful. I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of wor- words that, you know, I need a thesaurus or something, but it's just, it's not good. Um, I, I personally suffered a lot psychologically because of that. Um, there was a lot of guilt um, and self-hatred. I would say that um, if, if a couple of words could, could illustrate my experience as a woman in Christianity over the 24 years that I was a Christian, I would say that the words guilt and self-hatred were, um, you know, most prominent for me because from a very young age, I was made to believe that parts of me, not only like personality wise, but physically were um, up for moral debate and that I could be blamed for them. Um, Which, which just, I mean, as a Christian, as somebody who was, you know, a, a people pleaser and a goody two shoes growing up, I wanted to do everything right. I wanted to be the good girl. I wanted to have people say, you know, oh, she's, um, you know, she's good. You know, I, I don't know. I just really wanted to be seen as good. And um, so anytime that my like modesty or sexuality came into question, I felt guilty about it. I felt like it's my fault. And um, 
it's something that is just inherently wrong with me or that I need to try to fix or that I just need to repress. So, um, so yeah, a lot of psychological trauma um, from, from the whole modesty thing personally. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, that's a real thing. And I've heard it from pretty much all of my female friends who have uh, left Christianity. Um, which is an ever-growing list. Um, I it, it it sucks. It sucks for um for people to be put in a position where uh they have to they have to consider um <laughs> what they wear or, or what they're you know what they're communicating non-verbally so um so intensely and so thoroughly. Like what a exhausting way to live. Um, mm-hmm. and it, and, you know, I've, I've, I've said this before, you know, like purity culture really does affect women. It, it affects men and women. Don't get me wrong. Um, I have plenty of stuff I can share about how it's affected me, but it affects women. Um, definitely disproportionately, you know, the, the pressure for a woman to be a virgin, uh, when they're married in evangelical circles is way higher than the pressure for a Christian dude to be a virgin. And, um, yeah. You know, there is plenty of pressure for men to get married so they can have sex. Um, but like, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. Do you think that purity culture helps sustain um, patriarchal ideals? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think that purity culture and specifically, you know, what the Bible says about women and about marriage and about that relationship is there's a sense of ownership that the husband has ownership of his wife's body and sexuality even before they're married, which is why, you know, they preach abstinence because you don't want to, you know, go messing that up before you get married to the person who actually is going to own your sexuality. And um, so, yeah, I, it definitely helps uphold patriarchy, patriarchal, patriarchal ideals. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, I, I know personally and like from my conversations with male friends that, you're right. There is more of a pressure on women to maintain their purity before uh, marriage. And at the same time, there's also more blame put on women if that um, purity is, um, you know, like marred in any way. So, for example, if somebody is if a Christian couple is engaged and they have sex before they get married, the person who's going to be blamed more is going to be the woman um, because they're going to say, you know, Things like it was it was her responsibility to, um, you know, like keep the the relationship pure or like, you know, she maybe was dressing or being like provocative in a certain way. Um, It's there's a lot of blaming women and not just in religion, but in, you know, really sadly, like if you look at like rape cases, there's a whole lot of victim blaming like, oh, what was she wearing or what was she doing? What was she saying? Did she ask for it? And those questions are never asked of males. So there's definitely a power dynamic there in which the men, um, the women are subjugated to the men sexually and that they owe things to men sexually. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the the idea is women are supposed to, I think I've even heard this phrase, like bridle the lust of men. Like it, it's a... Uh... <sighs> It's it's just it's messed up, especially when uh, you know generalizations, of course. But 
men typically are the in christian circles from my observations are way quicker to pressure the girls to be sexual than vice versa right but then a lot of the times you know again in my personal experience the male will make the the female feel guilty about it so like it, it happened you to caused me, me to times. stumble yeah you caused yeah. me to stumble we need to yeah. we need to have better boundaries you shouldn't when you wear this yes. it makes me feel this that kind of stuff yeah 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 like it, it was your fault i mean i was made to feel guilty by like like that first guy that i ever made out with that i talked about earlier um he he basically like made me feel like shit about it after even though he was the instigator of it and everything and i was like you know not sure if that's what i wanted to do and blah 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 um so yeah that happened to me an annoying amount of times um even though i like didn't you know have a lot of sexual experience or you know intimate experience before I got married but still it happened so many times where um I I was made to feel guilty about a situation that I did not instigate at least not all by myself um so so yeah and there's always there's always that verbiage too of like you need to protect your your brothers in Christ um you know it's it's always I, I don't oh, think I can ever we please heard... I actually I'm sorry to interrupt I want to pause here and talk about uh-huh. this specific thing uh thank you for bringing it up it is the weirdest thing when you leave and look back on it. Everyone is your brother and sister in Christ. And they use uh-huh. that language specifically to guilt you into feeling like you're committing incest until you're yeah. married to your sister in Christ. It is the yeah. weirdest, horrible, subtle thing that I feel like no one talks about. And it, it it's so yeah. strange. Yeah, yeah. It makes it makes everything seem like even dirtier. <laughs> um and not in the hot way. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's why, like, uh, <laughs> step sibling porn is so oh, popular. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't repression. be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. My goodness. <laughs> All those years of repression, people are like, this is what people really want, you know? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah. No, it, it's, it is, it, it's so strange. And, yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible that, like, all that pressure seems to be... Um, Maybe not all that pressure, but like ninety percent of the pressure goes to goes to you know uh, women. And I, I apologize to the audience. I know we're using a lot of uh, binary language here, but remember, in evangelical culture, that's that is reality to them. There is only yeah. binary, so that's why we're using that that terminology. Right. Um, which yeah, which is even I mean, small tangent, which is even more harmful. Um, when you're talking about purity culture, because if sexuality, like if heterosexuality can't be discussed, then you can be damn sure that homosexuality can't be discussed or any kind of, you know, construct of, about gender, like none of that, everything is off limits, <laughs> like in, in within purity culture that that isn't monogamous, heterosexual Christian marriage. So that's just harmful on all sorts of accounts. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point to bring up. I'm sure. I I I I can't attest to this personally, um, but I'm sure purity culture uh, has just uh, destroyed the hearts of so many um, queer people growing up, and and it's oh, and yeah. it's it's horrible. I mean, it's truly horrible because I mean that just it delays an exploration and not again. There's probably some amount. It's going to depend person to person, like we're saying. You and I are not dualists, but uh, you know, you don't. Uh, 
there's probably some value in delaying exploration until you're like a little more mature, you know, mentally. Um, but like also it's okay to make mistakes and, and have some uh, awful stories in your sexual exploration. And, um, you know, I just don't want anybody taken advantage of, I guess would be my only uh, caution. Um, but yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's messed up. I, I, bottom line, point of this episode purity culture is messed up (laughs) it's basically what we're saying over and over again yes tldr it's it's really messed up (laughs) don't do it yeah don't don't be pure um don't (laughs) do it it's a trap um yeah i i didn't experience this at my church but i remember a church i was a youth pastor at did the true love waits thing um and uh the the youth pastor who was above me wanted me to uh to sign with the kids of the youth and i told him no <laughs> and he was like why not i was like i don't believe in this i don't believe in <laughs> make making contracts with your church i think it's overreach um which i'm proud of 18 year old john for uh saying that but yeah uh, yeah you know oh. <laughs> I, I, I had my moments i had some pretty rough ones too in fact that i i did want to address this briefly like you know, I don't know. I don't know who listens to this, but if you ever knew me back in the day, um, back when I was a, a piece of shit Christian, um, sorry. You know, like I know I've contributed to um, these patriarchal ideals and purity culture and been a hypocrite and done all of it at once. And it sucks, it, you know, but, um, you know, I, I, I will forever be sorry for it. And it and it really sucks coming out of it and realizing um what you were a part of and and continuing the cycles of abuse and damage yeah yeah and i appreciate you acknowledging that and i i acknowledge it too for myself i definitely i i cringe to think about the time that i i said the actual words i consider myself an anti-feminist because i was just so on board with with you know the patriarchy and I <laughs> like I yeah I, I cringe to think of the ways that I acted and the ways that I perpetuated this kind of this kind of harm um, to myself and to others um, you know I, women women and men can be complicit absolutely in in harmful purity culture and in perpetuating it yeah definitely um, but you and I are perfect beings now who never mess up. So it's all good. You should absolve us of everything. Um, here's a, here's sure, the, sure, sure, John. Sure, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Um, you know, many young folk are afraid to learn about their bodies in evangelical cultures. You know, um, proper sex ed is discouraged. In fact, I would suspect um, that most the most exposure to sex that many evangelical young people have is, in fact, pornography. Um which is an industry all in its own that, um, you know, definitely contains uh, some problematic treatment and portrayal of women, uh, especially on some of the more popular sites. So um, do you think it's sinister or just an accident that Christian leaders are basically just allowing women to primarily discover their sexuality through porn or from their husband? Like, it feels like that's the only two ways women in evangelical circles learn about sex. Right. Um, my, my issue here is that I personally did not view pornography until, um, after I split up from my ex. So the first 24 years of my life, 
I didn't view pornography. I, and that's not to say that like no Christian women do, because I know, you know, I know the Christian women do. I, I knew in Bible college people that struggled with it, um, female people that struggled with um, pornography, but that's just the thing. It was, it was a struggle and it wasn't seen as something that is, you know, um, encouraged or like a good way to learn about sex. Um, but so, so I wouldn't say that, you know, women are like allowed to discover their sexuality through porn because I don't think that they are. I, I don't think that it's like, I don't think that it's, um, it's definitely frowned upon for women to view pornography, even if it's not, you know, maybe as like big of an issue as it is with men. Um, traditionally, I mean, again, that's making a bunch of generalizations. Um, but I, I definitely don't think it's an accident that Christian leaders, you know, only encourage women to discover sexuality through their husband. Um, I think that that's, you know, it's very calculated. It's not only based on like the Bible and that's in the Bible's portrayal of women and men and how they should interact, but the, the whole, the whole power structure thing. Um, I think that, you know, giving a, a man ownership and possession of his wife's, his, you know, his woman's sexuality is, um, that's integral to Christianity. You know, that's, that's part of, that's part of how it works. And, um, that keeps women from, you know, being, discovering their sexuality fully or being sexually powerful or empowered. Um, because that's, that's scary. Anytime that a woman has any kind of power, you know, people think that she's a witch. So, like basically, you know, if, if a woman has any kind of power or um, agency apart from her husband, whether that be sexually or otherwise, then it's it's dangerous. It's a bad thing. Um, and this is like the, the crazy feminist coming out of me. But um, no, I don't think that it's an accident. I think that it's absolutely, you know, part of the system. It's definitely um, trademark Christianity that women should only be allowed to explore if they can even do that. Um, you know, with their husband. And in a lot of, in a lot of cases, women can't explore or discover their sexuality, even with their husband. Um, or they don't, or like in my case, they didn't feel like they were allowed to look to pornography. Um, cause that was just a bad thing. So. Yeah. I'll, I'll rephrase. Cause that, that, that is definitely true that porn is the, um, taboo thing that every Christian, I don't, it's, that's, obviously an overstatement but that a lot of christians watch i mean it's it's not a big secret um (laughs) you know study after study shows that christians watch porn not only just as much as non-christians but seemingly more um and you know there's all sorts of explanations as to why that is but it's true christian leaders aren't saying if you're going to learn about sexuality learn it from porn I, i no no nobody's doing that um but they are definitely saying learn it from your husband. The thing is, the husband's learning uh, most of his ideals about sex from porn. Right. Um, pro- again, way over generalizing here. But um, but the the way the system can perpetuate itself is the husband uh, is encouraged in his patriarchal and selfish desires in porn and passes it on to the woman. And if the woman happens to go somewhere else for information, which is either going to be another Christian woman who's suffering the same thing or the Internet, like those same patriarchal ideals might still be getting ingrained. Um, And yeah, I don't think it's an accident either. I think um, 
it might be the quiet part out loud. Um, I don't think Christians want to, uh, you know, I don't think they're plotting this per se. I think it's more uh, subtle and a, and a nod and an insidious thing. Um, but I, I brought this up to, to a, an expert in the field. I was having a Zoom call with her. Um, and she specifically deals with religious trauma associated with purity culture. And uh, I'll, I'll give her pers- perspective, at least the best I understand it is uh, she said, no, that's not happening. Um, she she thinks uh, any anything like that is purely accidental and Christians, you know, don't don't want people watching porn. So plenty to disagree on there. But I tend to think um, Christians are happy with what porn communicates, uh, even though they would never admit it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't, you know, speak as much to to that. I mean, like I said, my experience with with porn was I just I just never I just never viewed it. I was just I wasn't interested in it because it was such a bad thing from like such, you know, an early age. It was just taught to me that it was a problem. And I knew people for whom it was quote unquote a problem. Um, you know, there would be people at Bible college who would talk about like how they, you know, had an addiction, quote unquote, to pornography, using that word completely out of context and not um you know, it's possible that like they viewed porn twice and they were like, oh, I'm addicted to pornography because they just there was right. such a stigma <laughs> around it. And it was like seen as such a bad thing. So they overreacted about it. But um, but but yeah, like I don't I don't think that Christian leaders are like sitting around their table and being like, OK, here's what we're going to do to get the women down. I definitely don't think that. But they don't have to do that because it's already built into the system that they're teaching. Well, and at some point in history, men were doing that, you know, like, (laughs) so that's what some men still do. (laughs) Well, yeah, sure. Uh, But yeah, yeah, exactly. That's like, it's perpetuating itself um, almost automatically. And yeah, I do want to clarify, you know, I'm not particularly pro porn, anti porn or anything like that. I'm just saying, uh, I will, I will assertively say there is a lot of sexism in porn, especially uh, mainstream wise, and and I feel confident stating that opinion. Um, that's not necessarily a critique of porn, porn existing. Uh, it's just what I'm operating off of with this point. Yeah, and and like anything else, like I don't think it can be as easily classified into categories such as positive or negative, or helpful or unhelpful or whatever. There's definitely, you know exploitative and um, sexist um, and unethical pornography. But on the other hand, there there is, you know, consensual adult um, pornography that, you know, is it can be helpful and informative and um, pleasurable. Like it's it's again, it's it's nuanced and it's something that's complex and it's going to vary based on you know, from, from porn to porn, like there's going to be, there's going to be differences. So it's not, I don't think that, um, any kind of sweeping generalization about pornography is, uh, justifiable just because, you know, yeah, it can be done badly and it can be done helpfully. Um, so yeah, just, I mean, the theme just seems to be going back to, um, the, the binaries aren't indicative of, of the human experience and the porn experience can't be classified into those two baskets, I don't think. So it's something that requires a more practiced hand of, you know, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> practice, practice hand. I mean, it was, it was right there. I insert your own joke here. My goodness. <laughs> Insert your own joke here. Insert. Um, yeah. Right. Oh, gosh. Me, me, 
Me and you both like uh, <laughs> The Office too much, so the, the yeah. that's what she said. Who um, who doesn't love sex jokes? It's, yeah, it's no, that's a, <laughs> yeah. We can we can talk about that even like it is true that like <laughs> sex jokes. I know men do it. Christian men do it in evangelical circles a little bit, but it's kind of like mm-hmm. wink, wink, nod, nod. That's taboo that we just joked about. That do do girls yeah. make sexual jokes too? I, I don't know because they're so <laughs> um, segregated in evangelical <laughs> cultures. <laughs> I mean, I do. And I did like, but I, I, I largely kept, I tried to like keep my sexual jokes and stuff like that to like just girls. And this, this can open up like a whole other can of worms. And I think I might've talked to you about this before, but like, um, how, how I, like when I wanted to express certain parts of my sexuality, I would do it with girls, like as a joke, because like girls would think it's funny. And I never once thought like, you know, oh, this is, this is bad because it's not bad because I can only be heterosexual. That's the only option. So as long as I'm not doing this with guys, I can make sex jokes or do sexual things with girls and it'll be totally fine because it's not because it's fine because it's girls right like anyway that's just going into the no it's true it's about. it's the uh it's the uh homophobia uh paradox yeah where it's like yeah. oh because i'm homophobic i can act homosexual <laughs> it's like yeah because wait a minute anything. yeah because <laughs> right. nobody's gonna like accuse me of being lesbian because i give girls lap dances like oh that's just miley having fun and being silly yeah. <laughs> when like in reality yeah. you know Something else is going on there, but I'd, yeah. So to answer your question, um, some girls make, some Christian girls make like sex jokes and stuff like that. Yes. There were some that like I lived with at Bible college who I kind of like got along with a little bit better because they were like more open about stuff like that. Uh, like joking around. So we could joke around about stuff. Um, and, and it wouldn't be weird, but then there were definitely some who were like prudish about that and they would, you know, judge us if we, if we did that. But oh man yeah man all right so many stories that i'm like not gonna tell that (laughs) not gonna tell that story um (laughs) but yeah you know ultimately i do tend to think that white evangelicalism is uh more insidious than it initially appears um so so do you think it's possible that purity culture exists primarily as an attempt to control people's bodies because controlling people's bodies can make controlling minds even easier. This is one of the first points I make in my book, actually. Hmm. Uh, that's that's an interesting question. I, I think yes. I think an all. I think um, an argument can be made that trying to assert control over bodies makes it easier to control minds because. It, I mean, in my own case, for example, that definitely was the case. The efforts to, you know, indoctrinate me about modesty, about my body and what I wore and everything like that definitely had an effect on my mind um, and how I viewed myself and how I viewed the world around me. And so kind of made me a good servant to to, um, to Christianity. Um, so So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that. And I definitely agree that white evangelicalism is definitely more insidious than than it can appear um it's yeah it's it's something that i mean obviously you you have a podcast about it like you can talk for hours about um we can we can all talk for hours about how how insidious and harmful it can be um so yeah i think purity culture definitely has to do with with power dynamics and control for sure yeah, and the and the idea of controlling bodies equating to controlling minds, it's it's to me, and I'm I'm sure some brilliant psychologist who has a dissertation agrees with me somewhere, and I just haven't read them yet. Um, but but my thinking is the math, right? Because we we 
we think that uh, 93% of communication is nonverbal. So if you're controlling the nonverbal, you're controlling what 93% or whatever it is of what people are communicating. Um, And yeah, I mean, there's so many things you can read about nonverbal communication where how you posture, uh, how you dress for an interview, like these are ideas we all accept um, in the, in the secular world, so to speak. But ultimately I truly believe that modesty, purity culture, all of it, if you control the body, you control the mind. And that, that I think is the motive because again, the currency of evangelicalism, a lot of times, yeah, it's actual currency, it's money, but usually it's power. Like that, that is the big uh, currency as far as I can tell. Right. And, and if you, control the body like you were saying if that's 93 percent of the communication if you control the body then you're controlling the narrative you're controlling the communication um because words i mean i i'm like you know i like poetry and i like words and i like flouncy language and whatnot and vocabulary like i i think words are great and language is amazing um but at the same time like you said yeah most of it is nonverbal. i mean our species didn't even have language for you know all of its all of its evolution but still was able to communicate effectively are you so saying it's... adam and eve didn't have <laughs> sorry right, well, we, we don't we don't need to go into adam and eve um <laughs> <laughs> sorry I'm sorry what were you saying <laughs> no yeah I was just I was just saying if you control the the body then you control the majority of communication anyway so you control the narrative as it is yeah yep yep yes yes and yes yeah so um thank you Miley for for coming on and talking about all this stuff I know it can be kind of heavy and and uh upsetting but I, I I appreciate how you talk about things how vulnerable you are um, this is important stuff to talk about and, and truly I'm pained to know, uh, you know, I, I think of young people the most, how they're just so trapped and helpless and like, uh, you know, they don't always have the options to get out of these systems. Um, but thankfully I know they can because you and I did, you know, it, it's wild to think, uh, I think about all the time, you know, I, one of my first classes at Bible college, I think I sat next to you like <laughs> all those years ago and probably yep. said probably flirted with you a little bit or something. And then, uh, you know, yeah, probably. Yeah, pr- probably. Sounds right. <laughs> Sounds right. Uh, and yeah. And it's just it's funny to think, you know, I would have never dreamed like years from now, you and I would both not only not be Christians, but be talking about um, how cultish it can be. Um but it, but it's important, I think, to to keep having these conversations. Um, is there anything you wanted to add before before we sign off? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I I just agree with you that it's really important to talk about this kind of stuff and to hear different perspectives. And um, I mean, you and I have like similar perspectives and kind of similar journeys, which is which is cool. Um, but. But yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I love talking about this kind of stuff because I think, I mean, again, it's something that needs to be talked about more, especially purity and sexuality, like in the context of Christianity and outside of the context of Christianity. It's definitely something that needs to be talked about more because the more you talk about something, the more comfortable people are with the idea of it. And that's, I think, what needs to happen just in general with sexuality, um, you know, but but yeah so i'm I'm glad that we that we were able to talk about this yeah absolutely uh thanks for coming on and thank you listener for stopping by i'll talk to y'all soon 
If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to thecultofchristianity.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider subscribing for additional content. For only five bucks a month, you'll have access to two additional shows, Parsing Propaganda, where I review and critique Christian content, and Art, where we try some amateur religious trauma therapy. Every subscriber becomes a part of something bigger than this podcast as we endeavor to hold churches accountable, speak the truth boldly, and most importantly, love others despite our pain. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.